This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Alexandra Joel, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. I'm pleased to be talking to you. Yeah. So this is your third book, but it's the first time we've spoken on a podcast. I will introduce you. Alexandra is the former editor of Harper's Bazaar and Portfolio, Australia's first magazine for working women. She had a midlife career change inspired by her role as the president of the Royal Hospital for Women Foundation, and she decided to undertake uh, postgraduate studies in applied psychology and establish her own successful psychotherapy practice. Now, I do want to hear all about that. Uh, Her first novel, uh, The Paris Model, was an Australian bestseller and was published in the US, Canada and Europe while her memoir, Rosetta, A Scandalous True Story, was optioned for the screen by a major US-owned production company. So today we're talking about her latest novel, The Royal Correspondent, which I think is a little bit timely. I guess, what's that show that we've been all watching on Netflix? Um, Um, Would it be called The Crown? (laughs) Yes, it would be called The Crown. (laughs) Anyway, The Royal Correspondent is going to be published very soon in Australia. It's going to be our book of the week and look out for it. Okay, so, I mean, how many careers is this? There's a lot there. Well, I know that's true. I guess I'm a millennial before my time, Cheryl. Yes. (laughs) So I say I'm in my third age and this is my third career. Yeah, stop at that point. Firstly, millennials don't last in a job more than 18 months, so maybe you're not that. 18 months to two years. However, I was speaking to an Australian scientist over at Harvard, David Sinclair, and we were talking about longevity. It's a great podcast if you want to listen to it. But anyway, he was saying that there will be science or there will be in the form of tablets anyway. Long story, and I don't want to talk about that, but that we will end up living, you know, we could possibly live to 100 or 150 pain-free, you know, not in old person style that we're used to thinking about. And I said, oh, my God, you know, on this podcast, imagine you doing a job that you hate and you're 150 years old. And he said, no, 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 it will be that we will have three or four careers in our lifetime. That's you. Okay. So maybe are trendsetter. Really, one career has fed into the next. So although my first career was largely based in media and journalism, I spent five years with the Royal Hospital for Women Foundation, three as president, during the time that the hospital moved from its beloved Paddington site to the Prince of Wales campus. And our fundraising model, because we needed large, big bucks because we were building a hospital from scratch, was not to do events, but to go straight to benefactors and corporations. And most of the men you talk to were men because they control the purse strings. 
And to my surprise, I found that what they wanted to talk about in the first instance was not about the hospital and the gift and the money, but about the fact that their wife had had three miscarriages or their mother had died from breast cancer. And through that process of working with the hospital and working with our donors, I felt that I was really compelled to, as you say, do further study and go into this idea of psychotherapy because I saw a need in certain sectors of the community that weren't being addressed. A lot of people say to me, oh, my God, I mean, that's such a change going from, you know, being a journalist to being a therapist. But, you know, you're still in a room with a person asking questions. Yeah, love that. I want to kind of rewind, rewind, rewind. So tell me where you grew up and what led you to journalism. I grew up in uh, Sydney, on Sydney's North Shore. I grew up um, with a dad who had begun his career in journalism. I grew up listening to fantastic stories of exciting scoops and days of old when there were clattering typewriters and smoky newsrooms and, you know, people were going to all sorts of lengths to beat out other reporters because it was in the days where there wasn't television and radio news was in their infancy. I had an older father. He grew up in a really poor family, which actually inspired uh, the background of my heroine in my new book because he grew up in Enmore when it was a real dump. Oh, that's just near me. Well, in those days, it was a shocker. Mm. And his father said to him, there are only four ways out of this place and they are the four Ps. And they are police, priest, pugilist, as in pro boxer, or press. And oh, Dad I thought you were going to say prison. No, no, that's a way out. That's that's even deeper into the hole. <laughs> right. so Dad chose press and he started working at the Daily Telegraph at the age, he left Clevo Boys High and started working at the age of 14 on the Daily Telegraph. So I'd grown up with these amazing tales. I always loved English. I loved writing I was curious. When I went to university, there was no such thing like at Sydney University as a course in journalism. That didn't exist. Uh, so I did an honours degree in government. Um, I was very interested in history and politics. But I specialised in media, the political processes behind media. So that's what I graduated in. I spent the first six months out in the sticks in West Queensland in Mount Isa, which also has a cameo in the new book, working on regional TV and uh, newspapers, sort of learning the ropes. I then, I had met a US congressman who, and I was lucky enough to get an international internship then to the Hill in Washington. Oh so my I, goodness, how I, old were you? I became one, I was about 23 so I became one of the notorious interns on the Hill and I can tell you every story about salacious senators, congressmen and preying on 
sweet young female interns is absolutely true. Um, and after I think that, it's true here as well. I think it's true in Canberra. I think it's true everywhere. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. But I think it's almost, well, of course, we're going back in time then. So there was no redress then. Who was president at the time? Jimmy Carter. Oh, my God. And did you meet him? I did meet Jimmy Carter briefly and I met a lot of, of what was known as the Georgia Mafia because, of course, unlike here where we have sort of permanent heads of department and permanent public service in America, when a regime changes, when an administration ticks over, everybody leaves town and all the new people sweep in. So all of a sudden, you know, in the Congress canteen, you'd have hominy grits and, you know, southern fried chicken. (laughs) So they'd bring their own culture in. Oh, absolutely. And Washington is something of a southern city. That was enough for me to know that I didn't want to work in politics. Mm. But I was fascinated by this um, interaction with media. So I started off working more in the government end, working on FM broadcast inquiries and uh, licence renewals for TV stations. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to try writing. Mm. And... I started submitting pieces for magazines, only I wrote under a different name mm-hmm. and just went from there. And why did you do that? Why did you write under a different name? Well, I guess I felt that maybe I was dealing with cabinet ministers and that sort of thing about broadcast regulation. Yeah. Maybe they would think it was really weird if my name popped up in Clio or, mm. you know, Harper's Bazaar or one of the magazines that I was working for. But in the end, the balance got tipped because I really loved, I loved the work. I loved, and and so the... Um, loved gov- fashion. Exactly. Or loved, yeah. Well, I, I loved writing. I loved being able to look at a concept. I loved interviewing people. I'm just insanely curious. And one of the fabulous things about being a journalist and a therapist and indeed a writer an author, is that you get to find out all this wonderful stuff. Well, that's like being a podcaster like me. I get to talk to people. I'm talking to you today. I love it. So that led me to um, I wrote two books on the history of fashion in Australia. Hang on. Was that before you were editor of Harper's? That was before. Right. Okay. Oh, I wrote one before. And one after. Uh, The first was called Best Dressed and the second was called Parade. And it's kind of a social history of Australia told through dress. So instead of being like a dry academic book, it was using personalities literally from um, Mrs Macquarie to, I don't know, Sonia McMahon at the White House to show the what dress had meant in Australia. Anyway, then I became editor of 
Harper's Bazaar. Then I wrote another book called Hang on, I want to go back to being editor of (laughs) Harper's Bazaar. You can't just kind of glide over that one. It's a prestigious job. It's a big job. And back then, fashion was very, very important. I don't know, and you might be able to answer this, has the importance of fashion uh, dissipated because of what's happened to print media or is it that people are getting their fixes in other ways? But at the time, you would have been setting the trend. I mean, that was a big role. Those magazines really kind of were telling us what to wear, weren't they? That is true, and it really was the heyday of Mm. the glossies. So it was an exciting and fabulous atmosphere to work in. It was also sort of the late late 80s, early 90s, where women were really coming into their own but didn't have the certainty that they now have. We're, We're still looking more for guidance, and I think a lot of women were like me who had grown up I mean, I admit I grew up in a privileged area, the Upper North Shore, but I didn't know any mothers who worked, who had a career. Mm. And so we were doing everything for the first time. We couldn't Mm. ask our mothers, is this right for a meeting? How do I handle the boss? Or I think we were looking much more for direction there, whereas now women hold their own space, they're experienced, they have mentors, And the world has changed, especially obviously because of social media, where a trend can be broadcast instantly. You don't have to have one of those rare tickets to the couture shows in Paris and then have it translated back to you by a magazine like Harper's Bazaar. You've got your own front seat. You're on your screen. I want to go back a little bit to, to that role as well. So there was a lot of talk about various editors like Anna Wintour and, you know, there was, who did Meryl Streep play? Was that a fictional character? What was that? Um, well, she it was a fictional character, but people say it was inspired by Anna Wintour. Oh, so it was Anna Wintour. So it's called Nuclear Wintour. Right, okay. So there was a lot of these these women that got to the top had a big reputation, whether it was good or bad. But often, and I've only reflected on this recently, often they were, even in the Australian magazine like Women's Day, Women's Weekly, all of those, and I can't remember um, some of the people's names, there was a big personality. Who was the editor of Women's Day? She she since passed away. Oh, gosh. Oh, It'll come to me. So those women had the ones that were um, that had big personalities that were feisty that we heard about had really terrible reputations, and I remember thinking this only recently. Men never do. There's a million men out there who are running companies in a much much worse culture, in a much much worse fashion than say women did. But it was the women that bore the brunt of that, wasn't it? It was the women that was. Uh, singled out as being those kinds of women. Don't you think? Regrettably, not a great deal has changed. Do you think? I I remember during the Banking Royal Commission, the heads that rolled invariably seemed to be female. And the um, conversation in the media was, aren't we rushing things too much, stuffing all these women onto boards and giving them chairmanships when they're not ready? Yeah. And it's like, how many men have, I call it, failing their way to the top? Yeah. Women are held to a higher standard in terms of their work, 
but also there's all those traditional trays which, you know, in men are seen as being assertive and in women are seen as being aggressive. And Absolutely. Hillary Clinton suffered a lot from that. Yeah. You know, and you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. Mm. And there's the fabulous example of... Um, Stefanovic on morning TV where Paul, you know, here's Lisa Wilkinson wearing a different dress every day and he wore the same blue suit for a year and no, not only did nobody comment, nobody noticed. Mm. Fashion has changed a great deal from the days when I was editing and life has changed a great deal, especially the late 80s was an incredibly glamorous period People loved dressing up. There were fantastic parties. Um, and, yes, Paris and London and New York still played a more directional, I wouldn't say dictatorial, I think that belonged to the early 20th century, but a very strong role. Now fashion, it's, it's disseminated instantly. I think women are much more confident about how they want to express themselves. And also we've seen this, even pre-COVID, this casualisation mm. in terms of dress where, you know, it sort of started with Dress Down Friday and then it was, oh, what the hell, you know, keep a pair of high heels if you're a woman or keep a tie and a jacket if you're a man, you know, in your cupboard in case a client comes in. Mm. And now with COVID, dressing's changed completely. And I wonder if it will ever return. Personally, I don't think it will. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When I first did my research on you, I thought, oh, gosh, this is such diverse careers. Like, there's almost no connection between one and the other. But that's not true. There is a connection. There's a very strong co- connection because I am very curious about what makes people tick mm. and how the world evolves. Mm. That's also why I've always loved his. It's a weird combination, history and politics as well as fashion. It's like when I was at university, I was doing my honours degree at the same time as I was working at an advertising agency. Mm. People would go, that is so weird. But, you know, one feeds into the other. Mm. Tell me about your psychology experience. So what happened there? Well, I studied at the College of Applied Psychology. I was fortunate enough to be able to establish my own practice quite quickly and become successful. Was that because you went into it as a kind of a mature person? You had a different 
would you say that you'd already had experience in a way? I think life experience is enormously helpful. Mm. Clearly, you don't have to, nor would you wish to, have every experience that your client shares. I do think it is an advantage when you um, have been in an adult relationship, and I think it is a great advantage when you have had your own children. I think that teaches you humility and it gives you an understanding. I'm not saying that therapists cannot be very, very distinguished if they have not done this, but my own feeling was that without children, it would have been a bit like being a travel agent who'd never left Australia. So much comes from your family of origin and also because the relationship between therapist and client is so such a parallel in many regards to parent and child. So you left the magazine world yes. and you came into this and I'd imagine that it's not very glamorous. No, it's not. I got a whole new wardrobe. I went out and I bought a pair of plain grey pants, navy pants, black pants, and three different shirts and cardigans. And I did that consciously. Playing the part. Well, it's playing the part, but it's also being considerate to your client mm. because, in a sense, you're, you want to be neutral. You are the blank slate that they can reflect themselves from. It's not a very good idea to have them sitting there thinking, gee, she's got these amazing earrings on and I, I look terrible or I don't know what or even I wonder where she got that lipstick or whatever it is. You know, you're there for them. You're a neutral presence. I always said to clients when they arrived, this is your space. This is your time. I would set out the rules. I don't want you to swear viciously at me, although I don't care if you swear. I would rather you, you know, didn't um, get up and walk around the room because I might find that intimidating, whatever. But other than that, you can do whatever you like. You can be silent. You can cry. You can laugh. You can say whatever you want. Uh, Because my intention was to give them that still space that doesn't exist amongst all the white noise in the outside world. So that new, that new wardrobe was actually part of that and I enjoyed almost disappearing in that sense so I could join more fully with the client. And did you say when you were asking men for money, they were telling you? Oh, <laughs> no, I mean when you were asking for for philanthropy money for a fantastic cause. Um, did you? Was that your client base then when you became a psychologist or a psychotherapist? Yeah. Interestingly, my practice developed in a way that I hadn't expected. About half of my practice were kids in late adolescence and early adulthood. Oh, wow. That happened, I mean, although I did see women and men and I did find that it was um, quite men like the kids never want to be here. 
So they usually come in what's called an oppositional frame of mind because they've been made to come. Mm. will come voluntarily. They're dying to talk to somebody. Kids mm. are made to come and husbands begrudgingly will turn up or they'll be sent. Mm. They won't really want to, by and large. But I think possibly because of my simply genuine interest in them and both kids, why do I keep equating kids with men? That's weird, isn't it? Interesting. Um, you need to see someone. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is they expect okay. to be judged. Yeah, wow. When they find that you, they are not being judged, then instead of saying how terrible, you go, really? How was that for you? How did that work out? They are so relieved. Do you know what I think happens with men too, generally? And, you know, I've got a lot of adult male friends and sometimes, oh, how did you feel about that? And they're thrown. No one, I think we forget, women talk about their feelings all the time. I do it all the time. But I think sometimes men don't seem to do it amongst each other. And then when we ask them, when women ask them, they're just like, oh, no one's asked me that. Part of that reason is also because they have poor emotional vocabularies. Yeah. And I always say to mothers of sons, use lots of emotion words when you talk to them and not just, you know, I feel sad today because this happened or whatever, but say, you know, oh, God, when I eat this spaghetti bolognese, it just makes me feel so good as if I'm whatever it is. Mm. So it's really important to give men an emotional vocabulary. Part of that not wanting to speak is actually not having the words and like everything you have to practice. So it would be up to me to model that. And sometimes you obviously you have to throw words out. Is it this? Is it that? You know, were you sad? Were you distressed? Was it frightening? Did it make you angry? So without leading them, sometimes you need to provide that vocabulary. So then you went from that, uh, because we're running out of time and because you're so interesting, you went to writing and to writing, you know, you wrote fiction or you're writing fiction and you've also written a memoir. Talk to me because, you know, it's very different being a journalist and writing, you know, short form, if you like, to going to long form. I mean, that that must be overwhelming when you first sit at that task and think I'm going to start writing a book. Yeah, it's like this gigantic mountain. Yes. Uh, Like, oh, my God. And, um, you know, it's like when you're a few pages in, you're kind of thinking, oh, I must be mad. You know, I'm crazy and I still do this. I think, why am I doing this to myself again? But it is such a thrilling journey. It is truly such a thrilling journey. And with my books, I feel as if it's a story that I'm dying to read. And part of that is also because I choose something in which I'm fascinating, fascinated, an era, a perfect, like the role correspondent is set in the late 50s and early 60s, the dawn of the swing 60s, really interesting era. I choose a profession, journalism, but journalism as it was in those smoky newsrooms. Um, I choose something that I'm really interested in. And then I work out a plot. And I work out the plot to about halfway when my protagonist is in a world of trouble. And frankly, I have no idea how she or did he is going to be extricated. 
Um, but when I'm writing, it's like a book I'm dying to read and I am actually dying to find out what happens next and I simply don't know until I'm there at my keyboard. So it's it's exciting. What's the fascination that we have with monarchies? What is it? Because, you know, I'm a Republican, a liberal thinker through and through, and, you know, the idea that the Queen is the Queen of Australia just, you know, continues to horrify me. Yet I did watch The Crown <laughs> on Netflix. Yet I do pick up books like yours and read them and enjoy them. What, what, what do you think that is? I, too, I'll put my cards on the table. I, too, am an ardent Republican. I've been in the movement since the early Turnbull leadership days. It's not that I object to the Queen or anybody in her family, and nor do I object to it as a system of government in the UK. I just don't think it's relevant to Australia. But that aside, why are we fascinated? I think it's a number of things. One is their life is like a movie. There's pomp, you know, there's pageantry, there's glittering jewels, there's palaces, there's ball gowns. You know, what's not to love? You know what there isn't, though? There's not experience. There's not a lived life. There's no depth. There's, And I think the Crown did that very well. You know, there's not layers of depth because the life they live is so protected. I think we also have, I think we have a bit of a relationship with them um, similar to the ancient Greeks had with their gods. So they live this elevated life on Mount Olympus or in Buckingham Palace in this case, but all the gods had human foibles, you know, lust, greed, envy, anger. And I think we enjoy the same. Uh, I think you can draw a parallel. In the book, that's why I have set my character, my heroine, Blaze, who is at the absolute bottom of the pecking order. She's from work, really low working class Sydney. I mean, her mother has spent a life scrubbing floors. Her father is a hospital porter and set her against a family at the pinnacle of royal power because for that very reason, I think that clashes fascinating and the early 60s had to be the time because it's the time when that aura that perfection that we had been fed started to crumble all right well we've run out of time (laughs) that was going to happen uh the book is called the royal correspondent alexandra joel thank you so much for your time i love talking to you (laughs) thank you If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.